Hello, I'm Ridley Scott, and I'm going to be talking about Alien, um, which was the second film of my career, which followed The Duelists. I made this film in the year 1978, which was released in 1979. Uh, the uh, title sequence, I invited um, a very well-known graphic designer in fact, graphic designers, Steve Frankfurt and Richard Greenberg, to come into the, uh, to help me, um, uh, where we really were only talking about the uh, poster and, uh, and press work. Um, but when I saw their proposal, I then asked them if they would come in to actually uh, get involved in the title sequences, because I always felt title sequences somehow never echo the artwork on the poster work. And my only brief to them was I, I kind of wanted a hieroglyphic that would come up at the beginning because I always wanted to infer or suggest that this alien were, could have been a, from a sophisticated society. Obviously not comprehensible by us, but uh, I think the more sophisticated we made them, the more frightening they would be. And so they came up with what I think is really one of the best title sequences I've seen in years, and still have seen in years, since the great Saul Bass. So the film was always going to start in a rather somber, low-key fashion. And I always remember having this argument with the some of my colleagues at that particular time, including the studio, where they kept saying, but nothing happens for 45 minutes. And I said, well, that's the whole point, because once it starts to happen, I think we should have them. And I think uh, whilst 40, nothing happens in the first 45 minutes, it's, it's revealing the world that these uh, workers in space function in. And it's very interesting today in 1999 we're now talking about deep mining ideas in space, which of course, in, as, as, as part of the description of the Nostromo, is in fact involved in just that, mining in deep space. So the title sequence continues to unfold, revealing what is the Nostromo, which suggests some kind of freighter, aircraft carrier, refinery, where we gradually come to, come to um, what would be regarded as the living quarters. Um, and I always wanted to pull off this idea of that, that kind of crazy bird in the middle of the kitchen, which is dipping into water, um, because I was going to use that later, just prior to the, the, the Nostromo exploding. I'll explain that later. Yeah, we begin really with morning on this ship, whatever morning means in this no time in no <laughs> no time in space. Um, but we were witnessing a spaceship waken up or in fact be woken up by its central drive computer which we call mother. Uh, Kubrick had already found a great name for his computer, which was called Hal. I couldn't think of anything but to say mum or mother. Um, and 
the sinister idea of having the screens reflected in the faces of what were essentially emergency helmets, which were always in position on the back of two seats, seemed to be a great way of uh, opening the film. Uh, I came up with that idea when I actually saw the set coming together and so the addition of the helmets talking to each other was late in the day. But I think it worked pretty well. Hypersleep on long stretches and probably used as a hospital when they're all up and about. I always thought Jerry's music here was absolutely, to use a hackneyed word, poetic. And when I mixed it, it always brought a lump to my throat <laughs> on this cue right here. So there we're looking at seven babies, all slumbering unsuspecting. I love this piece of score here, it's fantastic. Jerry's one of those musicians who really watches the actors and uh, reflects what's going on with the performance. To be totally realistic, I always wanted all the crew to be stark naked, of course they would be. If they were lying in any form of hypersleep, they would be um, naked uh, but for obvious reasons I couldn't do that particularly this first shot otherwise I have a particularly extraordinary view um, and at one stage there was the discussion I said well I, the, may, the women may as well be you know topless because that's what it is I wanted to have a total sense of reality and rawness to this whole film uh, which because the rear, realer and truer you get then I think the scarier it gets later. But I lost that argument for obvious reasons, and so I think I remember now I did two versions and was told I can't use, I've got to use the, the covered up version. It's a very nice segue into them all being up. And uh, in this mix here, we're obviously meeting all the characters, but I wanted it to be in fact, normal early morning chatter, bearing in mind they've probably been asleep for 18 months. And so that's where they're eating rather uninteresting looking food because the, all the food would actually have to be, be the first food to enter, first real food to enter their bodies in months. And uh, the scene also, of course, is, is intr introducing and the characters, the below decks, which are Harry Dean Stanton and Yafit Koto, already complaining about their uh, deal. And uh, we never know whether that's serious or whether it's a continual um, discussion between them and Captain. On the Captain. Um, I also mixed it so it was a lot of um, overlapping dialogue because I didn't want people to be able to get clearly what everybody was saying because I wanted everybody talking at once, uh, thereby and hopefully getting the audience to feel uneasy. I always feel 
get stressed when everybody's talking at once and I can't actually differentiate between who's saying what. So on the, the real mix, on a, which was even on the six-track Dolby, uh, it was quite loud and quite aggressive. That was intentional. And then you have the piece in the chamber where um, the captain, Tom Skerritt, wants to find out why they've been woken up. Uh, obviously the sets are designed for total claustrophobia with low ceilings and sealed corridors and sealed chambers. And they're all pretty well four-sided with ceilings and uh, it was quite a kind of task or challenge for the lighting cameraman who uh, I think, I believe until recently, has never done another feature film, but was a, a great colleague of mine where we'd done many television commercials together right. called Derek Van Lint. Um, and I still think that uh, when you see this um, in DVD, it will recapture what the original print was like. Um, and I think Derek did an absolutely wonderful job. Um, probably one of the best-looking films that I've done. Um, where, oddly enough, looking at it again, uh, it really hasn't dated, which is kind of nice, which is a great reflection of the designer's... Um, and Derek's work. I love the dialogue here, which is basically gobbledygook, but it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And we have a nice connection with Earth, but with Sigoni's reference to Antarctic or Antarctica. So they're getting close, probably uh, many million miles, but still close. I was, what I thought about this crew and the way they were characterized is that uh, we were always told just enough about them so we knew, knew classically who they were, uh, who the troublemakers were, who the politicians were. Uh, there was a very, there was already a class system of below deck and upper deck. Jerry Goldsmith was a musician who was kind of formidable musician. Um, that I approached to uh, see if he would actually take this on board and he was immediately enthusiastic about the whole notion, the whole genre and the whole, you know, description of the atmosphere that I had to verbalize to him at that point. Um, and I still think, for me, this is one of the best scores I've ever been involved with. It was a real contribution to the sense of foreboding particularly at the beginning of the film, where the fear at one point in the editing process is not happening, happen, nothing happened for 45 minutes. But I think Jerry's music sustains the tension so that when something does start to happen, I think hopefully, I think it was successful. The audience was so sprung-loaded that the rest was easy, it was rock and roll. Human. Yeah, the casting process um, was uh, what I've now discovered, like all my films, took a long time. Um, I select very carefully um, where eventually it's a gut reaction to saying it's him or it's her. Um, it's a combination of various things. Obviously, 
acting capability, but also it's a physical thing. And then you've got to, you're mixing these, putting all these people together. And uh, so the process took quite a lot of time because from a director's angle, I think that if you cast right, you've got so many other problems when you're actually in the process of filming that the actor is really there to help you. And the better you cast, you've got 50% of your problems as far as they're concerned over on the day. They, they can help you as opposed to be opposed to you. And this crew were great. They worked very well as a team. And I think they all got a sense, probably from the first day, maybe something to do with the sets or something like that, and the, the whole atmosphere, but I think they all, we all felt we were making something special. And it's quite difficult, don't forget, in these days where, you know, none of them had done or had experience in space films, and therefore we were having to experiment and find ways of doing things to make that control room feel and be alive as if you're really in an aircraft or a spacecraft. So I, I had to ask them to do various silly things, such as I was trying to work out how do you, which we will see in a minute, that as they're coming in, if you really analyze it, these planet toys have no atmosphere, but I wanted vibration. And therefore I put in paint mixes under the seats of the actors. So they were juddering. And then I discovered they're juddering too fast. So if you watch carefully, you'll realize that the actors are doing most of the work, which is very difficult to say to an actor, listen, will you judder and shake as you're saying your lines? I'm still impressed by some of these models, which were made by uh, Nicky Alder and his crew. And this was the time of no motion control. We didn't even have motion control rails. We had to rig it out of scaffolding tubes. And it was interesting. I just tell Nicky what I wanted. He said, no problem. And one day I walked in his office and found him ordering six basic computers. Teeny ones, simple. Today's primitive in today's, by today's standards. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I want one to tell me, tell the model to turn left, another to right, the other up, the other down. So he was doing this incredibly basic lash up. But I think the end result is just still stands up there. It's really good. We shot in and got in close on the Nostromo. Uh, cheated like hell because I was giving it atmosphere. I guess they may have gas. If this would be gas, it wouldn't be atmosphere. It might be gas, gaseous. Here we go. There's a bump. Uh, so that's the camera wobbling and the actors complying with the wobble. So I was yanking the camera all over the place. I think this is the first time we're getting into wobbly cameras. So this precursors rock videos. <laughs> Dropping off now. The graphic design I always thought was great because it wasn't over-designed. If you're in a cockpit now of a very sophisticated fighter, it's amazing how basic they are. And I didn't want to go into overkill. I wanted it just to feel raw and real. All this is just the camera. As the Nostromo sinks, it's just a dolly craning up in a smoke room. 
So none of this is CGI, it's all just literally shot. It always bothered me that the lights underneath, that we couldn't get in a straight line. And that drove me crazy, but eventually we had to shoot. But that model there is only four feet long. Well, I think it looks pretty big. I always thought the exhausts were dodgy, so the exhausts are getting blown by the propellers. I'm trying to get the sense of movement of the, the air around it or the gas around it. But I guess you can buy it. That leg's about a foot across, so. Now the fire here was, because we, had, we were on a pretty tight schedule on this film, I think total schedule was about 12 weeks. So this fire had to be shot in a day. It was a real scramble. But with sound effects and shooting into lights and, of course, the actors, I think we conveyed the sense of chaos. And I love this cut straight out of it into let's face the music and see what kind of trouble we're in. Part of the reality was actually... You know, I think in handheld cameras, shooting the lights and things like that, which I'd been doing a lot of in commercials. And I was always an operator. So I just find operating is the best job on the floor. And, you know, if you've got your eye to the viewfinder, you know you've got it. Um, now we have video assist, and therefore it's less necessary, but I still love the process of operating. Because you can invent while you're doing it. And uh, I was always told in early days, actors don't like it if you operate. Well, this is not true, I've discovered. In fact, there there's seems to be a, a stronger camaraderie and a closer contact because they feel that you're really, really watching them. And the connection is very strong when you're operating. Again, a great cut from this uh, deafening roar, which on six-track Dolby is deafening, to almost an ear-popping air-conditioned silence when you're looking, uh, when you come into the cockpit and she's, and, and, and Veronica is reflectively looking out at this unfriendly planet. Uh, it's almost as if she knows something. Almost you feel that she is sensing that this is not going to be a good trip. Well, Mother says the sun's coming up in 20 minutes. I love Tom Skerritt's laid-back quality um, when he could play this as a noisy, you know, aggressive, macho pilot, but in fact he's, uh, he's actually almost like Chuck Yeager. <laughs> Very interesting... Uh, alphanumerics, uh, gobbledygook, we put on a green and yellow screen rather than black. And all this stuff here where the, you've got to have Ian Holm as the geologist speculating on uh, the mysterious chemistry of the planet. Great stuff, great acting. Better break out the weapons. There's a little shot where we see 
the scale of the nose, and we see her walk across in the window. The first sign here that that Ian isn't necessarily what you think he is. Is he arthritic, or is it something else? Or is a years in space have got to his joints? So that was a little that was a little suggestion by him, which I thought was great. I said, "What a great idea!" So there you have a an actor really thinking through the whole idea and the, getting into the notion of the realities of science fact and not science fiction. Love this cockpit. Somehow it's very fascist. This shot here actually is three children made in miniature spacesuits that we, uh, 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 who were my two sons and the cameraman's son. Um, I had small costumes made for them so the landing legs look, look bigger. So if that was an adult, those legs would look half the size, but they're children overcranked. This was shot direct link down below and a camera up on the monitor. And I'm blowing vermiculite through the air, which hurt like hell. So I had to wear goggles and breathing mask because vermiculite is basically chipped up teeny bits of plastic. Hey, Ripley! <laughs> uh, the idea of making the hero a heroine I think was a masterstroke because we truly expect Sigourney probably to be the first one to go and of course the story is different. Brett, you're guaranteed by law to get a share. What? Why don't you just We had a whole armory of CO2 because of course any scientist would look at this and say what the hell have they got CO2 there for? But I just liked it so here we use CO2 for the first time. And he switches it off. Just a great dramatic end to the scene. Sigoni was great because she has such uh, uh, presence and authority as the officer who is most likely to irritate, uh, which she really gets up Yafet Kodo's nose, which was a great uh, kind of um, subtext. Uh, so she's, even here you have, even at this time in the future, you still have the male chauvinism. Clearly we wanted to begin the tension between Sigoni and uh, Ian. Even that exchange is, there's, that, there's tension in it. Uh, there's a subtext there that we don't quite understand, but clearly he doesn't like her and she doesn't like him. We're about to come to uh, the landscape, which is Giga's work, which is of course carried out by, absolutely brilliantly by Les Dilly. It's worth mentioning here that um, there was a great sculptor that I think we introduced to the film industry called Peter Voicey, who unfortunately has passed away, but was absolutely brilliant. And he did all, worked all the models of the spacecraft um, and then worked 
closely with Les Dilly and eventually worked quite closely with Giga in helping in the process of sculpting. Um, uh, this is on the biggest stage at Shepparton on H. Um, the stillness, I think, which is underscored by the music and the plumes from the top of the helmets are great. There's the long shot of the derelict and the very unfriendly, very gigress planet. Ash, can you see this? Yes, I can. I've never seen anything like it. I decided to shoot the view of the spacecraft through a monitor because our, for financial reasons, our model didn't stand close examination, not of the spacecraft, but in fact of the planet itself. So suddenly it made sense to actually shoot, and I had an old domestic video. We made this up on the, on the day. I got an old domestic um, camera and filmed everything handheld, like this, just chugged towards the actual model, and then ran it back to the monitor and just filmed it. And then, of course, this link with the actors' voices, uh, plus their stentorian breathing, and then Ash saying, stare that again, okay? And then glimpsing this massive titanic shape worked really great, rather than just, and there we see it through. There we see Peter Voise's model. And those three little characters on the bottom are uh, one and a half inch high lead soldiers on a little rail going working with a little electronic device which makes them go side to side so you see a sense of movement but this model of Peter's was really only four feet long but it looks great still looks great and I took the drawing for the spaceship off a section of one of Giga's paintings because we couldn't work out what the hell the spaceship was going to look like and so I was staring at his book Necronomicon and he'd drawn something up which almost looked like a musical instrument. So I kind of drew around that and said, what about this? It looks like a giant croissant. But actually it worked, you know, like a boomerang. Now he's lost them. This is what I mean between execution and artwork. This could easily have ended looking like some bad coffee bar in the 50s, right? And in fact, it looks real, it looks organic, and it looks, I think, spooky as hell. And again, Jerry just hit the underscore with such delicacy it gives a sense of scale architecture and civilization not as we know it yeah. Come on down here. Something different down here. I always wanted to go back and make an alien five or six uh, where we find out where they came from and go there and answer the question who are they mars mars is too close so they can't be they can't be gods of war but the theory was in my head was this was a an aircraft carrier a battle wagon of 
a civilization and the eggs were a cargo, which were essentially weapons. So like a large form of bacteriological stroke, biomechanoid warfare. Once again, you cannot, you just cannot beat this score. It is great. And again, the set is pretty spectacular, really. John's beginning to condense up there. I think the old breathing apparatus ain't working too good. But actually, I like the condensation because once again, it gave you the idea that, you know, even then, everything doesn't work perfectly. That's alive. Looks like it's grown out of the chair. The space jockey is, I've always thought, was the driver of the craft, who is now, after many ages, of course it would be dustless, but uh, has started to look like a perfect example of Giga's mind, which is where does biology end and technology begin, because he seems to have grafted the creature into what essentially was, a, let's say, a pilot's seat. But clearly from here, this is where the transmission would emanate from, probably in, a, in an automatic trans, transmission. So this creature obviously had experienced uh, the... Maybe one of the eggs had been disturbed and a creature had got out, had attacked the rest of the crew. Don't ask me where they got to. But he's pretty gruesome. But let's say he was part of the civilization he came from and had now melded into his seat. I love this cut here. Dallas looks back at the, the cavernous head of the creature. And then you go back to the spaceship. Nothing. They don't know what's going on. I'm going to go out after them. What's the point? I mean, but the, the time it takes to get there, you'll, they'll know if it's a warning or not, yes? So now we have a tension once again from Ash that will later pay off. We'll understand why he's in a predicament and what's going through his mind. At the moment, we just think he just doesn't like her. Probably because he, the idea would be that she's an overzealous officer. So, I don't know how many minutes we're in now, but um, nothing's happened yet. You don't have to start and rock and roll, you know. So he's, he's being lowered into the hold, really. This, this would be argued as the hold in the ship. This is a combination of matte painting and uh, hard set. I managed to get the use of laser beam, uh, which I could spread in a thin blue sheet, which just about photographed. And underneath the laser, I'm releasing uh, uh, smoke gently. So that's why it's behaving like that on the surface as it hits the light. 
the sheet, as I call it, of the laser beam. This is a laser beam spread thin, like a thin sheet. But it worked great here, and I, I never thought it would photograph because it's pretty low key. But, you know, with the wizardry of, of Derek, we got it. So this is all just handheld and lay the sound on as you go through the laser beam. You can hear it. There's a sound to the laser beam. You can hear it now. Like a seal. There's a, a layer of mist just covering the eggs that reacts when broken. I always thought of the laser beam as the placenta wall for the um, eggs. So now he's underneath, underneath. Now he's inside with him. Now what's interesting, we did the pickup on the egg later. And if you watch the egg closely on the close-up, you'll see that the liquid in it is going upwards and the drops are going upwards, not downwards. We did that by turning the, the uh, camera upside down, basically. And the, I always love this moment, this is great. There, you see the drops going upwards. So now he's triggered it. Inside there, that movement, are my hands and a pair of rubber gloves. <laughs> in a fiber, fiberglass, um, it's clear fiberglass and they are hands in a rubber glove. There you go. Uh, because, you know, I've, I always believe you can do it physically, do it. You could just spend $100,000 on that movement. It's ridiculous. You don't need to. But that top opening is hydraulic. And that looks serious. If you put your hand there, you're going to lose it. Unfortunately, nothing looked right. So I would have somebody visit the meat market every morning. And they would come back with fresh meat which was the lace work you see there's called Nottingham Lace, which is basically the skin from the uh, stomach of a cow, which when they pull it off in the slaughterhouse, you have this beautiful uh, filigree of lace, which is lining the stomach. So we laid that over the top. And then the thing that snaps up and hits him in the face is a, an intestine of a sheep which has all been steam cleaned and immaculate. Just put an airline on it and just went. I just, I, I used to have rubber gloves on a white coat and I had to dress it for every shot. I felt like a surgeon. And then the airline went on and bang. And it, you know, works. I guess if you spend a lot of time together in space, the camaraderie will gradually disappear and uh, each person will become isolated with their own thoughts and their own memories of where they've been and where they're going to. And therefore, all of the characters are designed as not really being comrades. It's, there's a kind of cold relationship amongst all of them. And an interesting point is that at the end of the film, Sigoni does the extraordinary thing of going back for a cat, uh, where maybe our only real relationship on the spaceship is the cat. So Sigoni here, you see an officer wanting to go by the book. 
even countermanding the wishes of her captain. So she's now taking over, and she's being right to do so. If only they just stayed with it, there'd have been no problem. This always spooked the audience totally. The very simple thing that the the um, the tail of the face hugger tightens on the man's neck. That's my favorite reaction in a movie. <laughs> my God, and there it is. Now that's just a rubber tail with a bit of line on it. Just pulled it tight. <laughs> what the hell is that? How is he? How are we gonna get that off? There was a cut scene and we trimmed a scene where Veronica had a go at Sigoni basically with words, as far as I can remember, saying, you bitch, you're intending to keep us out there. And of course, Sigoni uh, did absolutely the right thing by the book. She went absolutely by the book. Finger. And of course, here they are now in deep trouble, and they don't know it. It's tearing his skull. I know. It's not coming off without tearing his face off with it. We'll have to take a look at him inside. Right. This particular set here, where Ron Cobb had uh, done a lot of visuals of the interior of the Nostromo, and I would say this is one of the most realistic and beautiful uh, pieces of technology I've seen, you know. Well, you know, I think um, the best technology ever presented probably was in 2001, Stanley Kubrick. And so it was very difficult because Stanley had done that and it was, was and still is one of my favorite films, if I had to say, you know, if you, what's your 20 favorite films that would have to be in there. Um, and therefore it was tricky not to get influenced by what he'd done. Of course, what he had done, I think A had worked closely with finding out what NASA speculative designs were or would be. So when you think about 2001 and you look at what's happening today, he's still ahead of the game. Right? And uh, so we had to avoid that at all costs, but inevitably, it's fair to say I was very much influenced by 2001. I'm willing to take that chance. Let's cut it off from now. You take responsibility? Yes, yes, I'll take responsibility now. Get him out of here. Well, where do you want to do this? I'm making a decision just below the knuckle there. Right here. Stand by. Boy, that's effective. I forgot how effective that was. Now that's just polystyrene on a fairly potent acid and it sure goes through there fast but it looks like um, it I thought was a great subtle way of saying that this thing is indestructible and has gone through metal burnt through a boot
There it is. Don't get under it. Don't get under it. Looks like it's stopping. Take a look at this, man. Yeah, it's interesting to note here that the full realization that uh, there might be trouble here is that you get a sense that they are beginning to work together for the first time rather than being aggressive with each other and unreceptive. It stopped. Don't say anything like that except uh, molecular acid. It must be using it for blood. Bit of Irving in the explainer. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. What about Kane? Here's your pen, bro. Nice humorous moment. What do we do now? <laughs> Kane to Ash. You get and of course, Harry's up next. <laughs> oh, what? Here we are in the engine room. I liked a lot of the scissor arcs, which give you are usually used for lighting, lightning. Um, so it's introducing a lot of familiar stuff, but in unfamiliar surroundings, like the CO2. Um, this technology of this spacecraft doesn't stand too close scrutiny. <laughs> well, as soon as we patch this thing up and get out of here. The sooner we can go home. This place gives me the creeps. Yeah, this is a beautiful set. The idea of using these long shots, I think, are good because it allows the audience to work as well and it's knowing how long you should draw out the tension before they start to get fidgety and of course what helps enormously is the music keeps it alive and it's a scene of silence after all the noise and running around it's kind of a a relief but there's a tension to this as well And Ian was always full of little idiosyncrasies. You see that little mouth movement he did just before he looked into the the uh, scope. And the little jump. I think I never got Sigoni on the day. I think we were running behind. So I think the reason why is I never got round to her. Uh, how's Kane? He's holding that changes. It kind of works though because our guest. by holding him, hmm? you get a sense that there's a something going on. I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of there's a duplicity to Ash that you can't quite work out. So it's a clue for what you know later, for what you'll find out later. There's some great gobbledygook in this, and I, I must hand it to the actors the way they pulled it off and made it come alive. Well, it's an interesting combination of elements, making him a 
tough little son of a bitch. And you let him in. I was obeying a direct order, remember? So now we have Sigoni beginning to show authority. I'm senior officer. And she's suspicious. You also forgot the science division's basic quarantine law. No, that I didn't forget. Oh, I see. You just broke it. Huh? Look, what would you have done with Kane? Hmm? You know, his only chance of surviving is to get So this scene, really, we had to have to explain... You know, the pecking order, the logic, and just explain why his argument about letting them in and her argument about saying you disappeared every... You, you disappeared the first rule in the book. They should have quarantined them and had them kept away from them. That would be in the book of space. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to remind people is that even in, let's say this film takes place in a hundred years time, or less, 50 years time, the way technology is moving, Mozart will still be played, Vivaldi will still be played, uh, and Mozart particularly, who's the true genius of music, otherwise we, we wouldn't have rock and roll today without him. It also lets you in a little bit on Dallas shows a, you know, what kind of person he is. Uh, is he spiritual? Is he, he was certainly sensitive. Ripley, meet me in the infirmary right away. Where is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, we have to try and find Yeah, let's check it. I made this handheld because of the slight movement, um, which again, you're wanting to make an audience uneasy. They know it's in there somewhere, and they don't know what to expect. Because I think even when a film comes out and people get the heat from the movie and they want to see it, they still don't know where it's going to happen. So this could be the scene um, that scares the hell out of them. But I think we now had enough tension going. I was trying to work out of a shock on the day and we couldn't. So that's a cheap shock, <laughs> but it worked. And I always felt this was a bit artificial that uh, Nothing really happened, and yet, on reflection, actually, it was good because there was worse to come. It's worth mentioning the Sandman on this, Jimmy Shields. You'll notice that light even has a sound, right? So, when you, if you listen to the track, 
you'll hear all kinds of weird and wonderful, very subtle sounds. In fact, I did, f I think, four or five films with Jimmy, who's still going strong. <clears throat> that's the corner you expect, and then it drops. That's, a, that's, that's as good as we could do on the day. And all, all we could do was have the prop man drop it. <laughs> what? It's up there somewhere. So you're convinced that something's going to happen to Ian here. Of course, it's not. That's Good shot. That's a reflex, actually. Now, the interior of this thing, we made a rubber case, and the inside of it there is all shellfish. They are, on its surface there, they are um, oysters, clams. So there's oysters and clams, all fresh. And every morning we'd have a bucket of oysters and clams and I'd just put them in with tweezers and just dress it. <laughs> but it kind of looks real. But it is real. Ash, are you kidding? This thing bled acid. Who knows what it's going to do when it's dead? I think it's safe to assume it isn't a zombie. I like the three heads in this. I like Dallas just there, absolutely staring in silence at it. It's not burning at the stake, but you're the science officer. It's your decision, Ash. Dallas? How come I gotta change my mind? All right, the decision's been made. I'm not trying to change your mind, Dallas. I just want you to listen. Will you listen to me? Uh, this was interesting because uh, this scene at one stage uh, had a suggestion, tonally, that she and Dallas have some kind of relationship. And we thought it didn't go anywhere, and therefore it was puzzling, so we withdrew it. We didn't need it. It was better to keep it all about business. I don't trust him. I don't trust anybody. Actually, the scene we had, it was a good scene. And sometimes on reflection, the innuendo of a relationship might have been useful. We're blind on B and C decks. The, the reserve power system's Oh, blind. no, that's a bunch of horseshit. We can take off without that. Well, yeah, we can. You think that's a good idea? Look, I just want to get the hell out of here, all right? I like Tom's take on just the relaxed um, pragmatist and sometimes almost the voice, the only voice of reason and refuses to get drawn into arguments or discussions. Very cool captain feels familiar, you know, so even in 50 years' time, people are still the same. There's the old wobbly shot, nearly breaking the mount on the Panavision. <laughs> this is just handheld. They're shaking. I've got two prop men shaking their seats. It was ridiculous. But it works, you know, whatever it takes. The problem is you've got to get them into that mode to understand that it'll be fine. <laughs> I love this cue here as they go through, or is it, wait a minute, as they come out, walk in the park, I think he says in a minute. Here, love this cue.
There it is. Sigoni, a little glimpse of Sigoni looking appropriately anxious and relieved. Interestingly enough, they are now seem to have been emotion, emotionally drawn together through that rather anxious interlude. So they're kind of working in as a team. And uh, I kind of like this this element of humor in here. The idea being that they're going to go back home now. Problem is they're going to have to go back in the hypersleep, which they don't like. You get a reference to a lot of Oriental food in this, and also the Hawaiian shirt of uh, Yafet. Uh, sorry, of Harry Dean, who uh, probably picked it up in some station way off somewhere, just off Mars, where they go into some gift shop. He gets cards for the kids that he'll probably see in four years' time, and so he, that's why he bought his Hawaiian shirt. And we hit the breakfast scene before they're going to go back into hypersleep. In fact, they'd probably be eating food in special preparation so that once they're in the hypersleep, they would, to be graphic, secrete or lose the food. So it'd be kind of liquid form. Do you remember anything about the planet? What's the last thing you do remember? This is a good scene to hear Jimmy Shields' sound effects. You can hear a, a hum which rises and falls, which is always there. Something is always there, which makes you uneasy. Because the sounds are almost organic. Jimmy used a lot of organic sounds. Okay, here's the famous scene. I think most of that food in there was muesli. Little look from Ian there as the kind of doctor on the board. He's still watching him closely because obviously he doesn't believe it's gone away. Dirty joke from Yafet. <laughs> Here it goes. I, well, I didn't ever show them what would come out. They never saw that. And we did all this in one take, but with five, or was it four cameras, with all the airlines prepared. So when he, once he's on the table, it's all preset to go. So all this is kind of one camera. And he starts to thresh. It's all handheld. And then you go to, he starts to spasm. Boom. That's a airline inside his chest inside his uh, vest now he's going into a spasm frenzy 
Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's pretty heavy. <laughs> Listen to the sounds. It's a baby. It's a boy. And I had to have a little railway track across the table to get rid of it. I didn't know how the hell to get rid of it. So we had to do a lash-up of a railway track going through all the debris on the table. And if you spot it and run frame by frame, after John hits his frenzy, his spasm, there's, you cut in and then there's an artificial chest screwed to the table, which was made in fiberglass with a hole in it. His shirt draped, t stretched tight over it prepared, we razored the fabric, then saturated it with blood. So when the ram happened, it would come through the shirt. And poor John is bent, bent in an S-bend underneath the table with his head sticking out with this thing holding him to the table, with his artificial chest holding him to the table. So underneath, Roger Dickens had to crush in there with John, with the little alien, and it was physically just rammed it through physically with it like it was like a gun and so the the baby worked from a trigger so he could open the mouth and make it look around with a very simple trigger the rest was blood and ky jelly <laughs> going between the two engines that shows the scale of the ship i love the relentless score here and this, I think it's because Jerry, even at, at that time, didn't work much with keyboard. This is all orchestra. So now we're at war. Now they realize they cannot go back in hypersleep. They have to do something. They're obviously not prepared for um, such eventualities. And therefore, they're having to use and adapt materials and 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 uh, lash up weapons including flamethrowers to hunt and protect this thing of course at this moment they think it's tiny but with this exotic biomechanoid he's growing as they speak good answer <laughs> Two teams, Ash, Lambert, and I, Ripley, Take Parker, and Brad. Now, anyone see this thing or catch it in the net that Parker is holding on his lap? Parker, I don't want any heroics out of you, all right? Catch it, put it in the airlock. Dallas is always very cool. Yaffet was always great as the troublemaker on board the ship. And the day that Yaffet had to die, he said, I'm not going to die. He said, this thing can't kill me. So I had, this, I had to have this long discussion persuading him to die that day. <laughs> so here they are in the bowels. I thought you fixed 12 modules. We did. A lot of the stuff we used here, see that egg crating? That's all just standard um, industrial pallets. We just created most of the set out of the pallets, and the rest were tube and exotic-looking 
pipework and conduits from aircraft. In fact, what it says, Roger Christian went off and bought two Canberra bombers, and we just dismantled them. Of course, on each bomber, there's millions of parts. These are jet engines standing on end. And we used all this stuff was essentially real. So I just got the stuff. And this is like a, what I always thought was like an Egyptian treasure, treasure trove, this room. So I said the whole room should be gold. And so we made it, spread it all gold. And I got that really off the first moon landing vehicle, which of course had all that, it looked what I call in English Heath Robinson, kind of a simple lash up with a lot of copper tin foil underneath to protect it. And uh, so we kept that in mind. Even this simple storeroom is a great set. And this is, of course, where we bring the cat into play. I doubt that the ship like this would have mice on board, but um, uh, the cat really is the mascot of the ship. Again, stretching out time for tension. Of course, when you've looked at this a few times, you start to think, uh, maybe we should get there quicker. But now I haven't seen the film for a few years. Um, I think it works. I took these lockers off um, Giger's book, Necronomicon, where Giger is fascinated by uh, machines. And, and uh, there was a marvelous photograph that he took of the back of a garbage truck in Zurich, which was kind of somehow threatening and grim. And that's what really these lockers were taken from. Now. I love this moment here. Wait, no, I love that moment where Yaf got really scared and Harry, who may have been a little slower, doesn't realise what he's let him what he's done. He's let the goddamn cat go. So now they can't pick up on a specific small movement. You get him, we'll go on. Kitty. Kitty, kitty. Kitty crap. Jones. I love this cue here. Jonesy? Love this cue. Now you know how he's going to die. You can hear the ship creaking. There's the treasure room. Yeah, we actually, because this is one of the equipment rooms, I just got 
fairly exotic looking digging equipment of the appropriate size, small bulldozers and small earth movers, and just spread them all gold. And uh, somehow it works as very high-tech pieces of equipment. Harry always loved that close-up. He thanked me, he saw the, the premiere, and he came to me and said, thanks for the close-up. <laughs> you hear the sound? Yeah, that sounds organic again. Now, now that sound, I think, is a pulse. Now, this is a combination of this piece of equipment, of uh, existing equipment, tank tracks, with some shell casings. And there you have the pulse, which may be a very, very pullback heartbeat, and the skin the discarded skin, like a snake would discard its skin of something. Now we go into a room, there's a big argument about this room. They said, how would you have water dripping inside this room? And my argument was, it's condensation from the air conditioning. <laughs> but this is a landing leg room where the floor would open and that leg would go down in, and, you know, support the ship. He knows he's in trouble. But after all, the object he's looking for is small, isn't it? Now, to get this reaction out of the cat, I had a leash, I might add, for all animal lovers, because the cat wouldn't behave, so I had a German shepherd behind a sheet of board on a leash, so it obviously couldn't get near the cat. I just raised the board, and I got the reaction. <laughs> the cat went, what? I was like this where he, and the sound on the peak, on his peak, and on his face, it's cooling off. Silence again, and long stretches leading up to something. There he is. And here we have it. There it is. Perfect reaction. And a beautiful head. I wanted it to be beautiful. And I guess that's beautiful in a streamlined way. And the cat going backwards is perfect. And he doesn't know what he's looking at. No idea what he's looking at. And there's the famous mouth. The, uh, we used to have, uh, you know, Ripley and uh, uh, Sigourney and, 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 uh, and Yaffet rush in, but 
somehow that was too normal. It was more elegant to leave him to die in a lonely fashion and then come to them here. The cat was the only witness. I think Veronica starts to evoke a more fragile human spirit who is now terrified. And she's got the first sense of the reality of the situation that they're really in trouble. We can cover that up and then we drive it into the airlock and zap it into outer space. The son of a bitch is... So this is suggesting they saw something. It's big. It was better not to see it. Come on, Ash. And Ash saying Kane's son is very interesting. Yes, well, it's adapted remarkably well to our... Because the whole notion of this, you know, was taken off um, a certain type of insect that... Um, will use, find a host for its eggs. And then in that host, which could be another insect, a grub preferably, it will bury its eggs. And then of course the eggs will grow and consume the host. So that's the logic of it all. It's probably what makes a lot of nature go around. You and Ash, take the main airlock. Parker Lambert, you cover up that maintenance opening place. A grain, great sound, great aerial sound. You probably wouldn't get sound in space, but we decided to have it. A great, a great music cue here. The theme, really. <clears throat> Talking to the company talking to Whalen Utani, which I figured at that time. In fact, it reflected it later in Blade Runner that um, the world eventually is obviously going to be run by companies and organizations, um, which seemed exotic, you know, 18 years ago, but now it's a reality, right? That's the way we're headed. Um, and so this was speculation at the time. Funnily, by the time I got to do Blade Runner, the idea that Terrell Corporation was a mega, mega company, which at what stage does a company decide to have its own private army, its own pro or protection service? Right? And um, I think uh, at what moment does a company become more powerful than the government? <clears throat> and so that was always a subtext here. And certainly was in Blade Runner. This is where Dallas has elected to uh, go into the vents because that's where they believe it is. And um, I always loved the use of we use just existing technology for the vents um, with the huge steel irises, which I think have become a trademark since then in rock videos. Uh, but this was very simply shot. Uh, the set for the vent is tiny. And this was a big discussion and uh, argument, budgetary argument about how I had to have some kind of set to shoot Dallas in the vent. And so this was built on the edge of a set. And I doubt the set was more than mm, 30 feet long tube with a T-section in the middle. So you have an up and a down, a horizontal. 
And it was tricky for Dallas because he's, A, he's carrying a light B, he's uh, got the flamethrower, which is eating up his oxygen. So that's how you can hear him breathing heavily, which I think is, was always great. And of course that iris is very threatening. I think, again, this is where Tom's kind of uh, underplayed character who is, refuses to be phased. Underplayed is a bad word, actually. I think he played it brilliantly, where he's always cool, understated, and in a really terrifying situation. You've got a real sense of claustrophobia. And also, Sigourney's sense of uh, doom. I think she feels, I think she knows that he's going to die. This is really a one-way street, a real cul-de-sac. And you have Veronica being supercharged, convinced something awful is going to happen. And I always believe, unless the actors are saying this to you, you're not going to be frightened as an audience. Then we get repetition of the same set. So there we get a sense of a whole complex. Of course, this is where a mix is, sound mix is great because you can give a sense of the cavernous um, interiors of all these tubes. A lot of reverb on Dallas's voice. Again, we should keep shooting the same ladder and the same tube. It's an exercise in using the same set many times. I've lost the signal. You sure? Look, look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around. Uh, first time I see Dallas bothered in the film. He, this is where he starts to feel that he's in trouble. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. There you get a panicked reaction. Uh, it's an interesting scene here, this, because somehow Tom really makes the audience feel put in the same situation. And we know he's going to die. Oh, it's now it's inevitable. And you, just, you get a sense of his feeling of panic as well, which is wonderful. And Ash waits for the inevitable. Ooh. Oddly enough, that was a sequence that um, we weren't really prepared for because we didn't really have what I thought was enough of a set. But uh, again, when you're forced to be inventive, um, uh, you know, the best comes out of it. It works very well. Nothing. Uh, we had a scene in between this, which was a scene between Sigoni comforting a 
terror terrorized um, Veronica, who is really the first member of the crew to begin to lose it. And also it's a very important scene because this is where Sagoni now is in charge. She's next in command. She's taken over from Dallas. And also it's a proving scene for Sagoni because you have Ash, you have Yafet Kodo, who are obviously wondering whether they can trust her judgment. I remember shooting this and uh, and I remember talking to Yafet and saying to Yafet, which is a little unfair, to wind up Sigoni and keep interrupting her. And it was really great because she established her authority. <laughs> So I think you have a very good takeover here by Sigoni. And Yafet backs down and is obliged to accept the situation. This really, the film in its simple form, you could argue, is the old dark house theory. Um with seven little Indians. You what? You're still collating? I find that hard to believe. What would you like to do? Just what you've been Oop. doing, Ash. Nothing. I've Felt that that's a looped line. That's interesting. It was obviously an addition afterwards that we suddenly realized that we needed that additional line. And I just picked it up. Um, we never covered that, and so we've realized that that is a little bit of explanation. Yeah, there was a scene prepared where we were trying to, and we couldn't afford to do it. We didn't know how to do it at that point in time without CGI and all that assistance. But the idea was to lure it into an airlock and blow it out the, at the airlock. And uh, it got jammed in the door and it started to burn a hole in the door. Uh, and then it tore itself loose and came back in. It would have been a nice sequence to shoot, but we couldn't afford to do that. We had to get extremely financially practical at this point. Always this scene is peculiar because you wonder how Ash got in behind her. So now she has a block. She's not going to get any more information. And uh, she's dipping into basically company records and is not going to get the right answer. So, so this is where you get the duplicity of the company that as protection on all of its ships, and this is what I thought was a really great original idea, would plant a humanoid or robot to protect its interests, which is about to be revealed. And there, there he is. 
Now, what was interesting here, I, I like Ash reacting to a human emotion by, he wasn't frightened of her, he was backing off. He didn't understand why she was crying. He, probably because he'd never seen that before. So that was what you got that rather peculiar reaction from Ash as he shrinks away from her. Because it's not, why would he be fearful, right? Now we have malevolence, which is even stranger by just adding one simple thing, which just came out in the day. There it is. He's beginning to perspire, and this perspiration is white. <laughs> filled the Nostromo with all these toys from the various gift shops around the universe, wherever they'd stopped off. And uh, that's what these little toys were. I always figured that wherever you go, there'll be gift shops. So that's where, um, that's how the Hawaiian shirt appeared, that's how the dipping bird appeared, and that's the toys. Yeah. Uh, I guess this is the s closest thing to seeing a robot have sex. <laughs> I need to have some show of strength, which was simple but violent. And I think here comes one of the really great ideas in the film, which is having this character in, on board that you had no idea what he was, and here it's to be revealed. And it al also makes sense. If you have interests, financial interests like this, you've got to have something on board there to make sure that you are protected. So he's like a walking transmitter. You hear the death of Ash and the winding down, the whatever's driving him. It's Jimmy Shields' great sounds. A lot of this stuff we had to make up on the day, virtually. So we couldn't work out how to kill Ash, so we used that one of those cattle prods. And also, we left his interior to really be an organic choice, rather than having 
you know, steel pipes and things like that. And so I just requested, really, it looked like a food table. <laughs> and I love the glass marbles on the strands and the teeny bits of fiber optics. And of course, his blood. Not a bad cut between a head that's not bad to getting the head of Ash actually coming through a hole in the table. Ash, can you hear me? Ash! Yes, I can hear you. Great voice. Yeah, we worked on that for ever trying to find out what would the voice be of this dying robot. You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back it almost has a Doppler effect. Priority one. All other priorities for Spooky. There's a damn company. What about our lives, you son of a bitch? This was a speech about, a really doomy speech about the indestructibility of it and the perfection of what they had, what they were against. And this was a scene that was written during photography because we're never happy about the dialogue that we had. And I think David had to work on this incessantly as we were headed towards the actual day. I think we came up with the words that morning, <laughs> or David did. I admire its purity. A survivor. Kind of a great speech. I've heard enough of this and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. I can't lie to you about your chances, but... Mm, great. That's a pretty tough piece of information at that point. <laughs> We're going to blow up the ship. So now we're in a really, I think, terrifying situation because big, tough Yafit has suddenly got his... Two women as part of his defense group. So, boy, he must have been f feeling really vulnerable. There's so much you do which you keep simple, you know, the head on the table, you could have gone crazy with all kinds of stuff underneath it. But actually, we, it was a very simple thing. We just ins had the mask, finished with it, checked the rushes, went back and incinerated it. That was it. One shot. Today that would cost a million dollars. <laughs> I think it probably cost about 200 quid. This is where I wanted to change the color of the corridors. I was getting fed up. And so I had them sprayed metallic uh, gray, gunmetal gray with a gold dusting. And uh, just to change and make the corridors more threatening. 
So on the front of the, every dolly, because we had to, it had to be a quick spray job, and it went a bit flat. And so I had this little box made in the front of the dolly with gold and silver uh, aerosols. So as I lined the shot up, I'd hop, up, hop off the camera and spray down all the panelling, whatever I saw it, on the spot. was done with a little bit of 16 millimeter. We shot her in a, a little cockpit set and then simply popped it on the back of the uh, miniature. It's an old helicopter. Uh, yeah, Sigoni, oddly enough, um, going back for a cat where she's looking for Jones is interesting because it shows a side of Sigoni which is uh, softer. And uh, it's never really been introduced in the film up to now. But I think it was interesting because you started to suspect the cat. So I wanted to keep the paranoia going in every direction now. Particularly at the end, when you get to the end, the cat is in the coffin with her, or the hypersleep or the, with her. Uh, one, I think most of the audience were convinced that the cat had an alien, uh, the next alien inside it. As these low-key light levels, it's very tricky because we're pretty well wide open on spherical, uh, on sorry, anamorphic. And um, you saw a little bit of out of focus there. It just shows how few takes I was doing. At this point, I was really running against the gun. Great key now. You've got a great cue coming in. And of course here, I wanted to promote the idea that Sigoni was next. Which is a pretty obvious thing to be doing at this point. You want to put her in direct jeopardy. And I was always concerned about, would the audience think, why the hell is she going back for the cat? But nobody seemed to question it. Just shows that we've got a whole bunch of animal lovers out there. She touched the seat button, that's what made the seat fly forward. A cheap, a cheap thrill. But that's what this kind of genre needs, is you've got to keep coming up with original uh, ways of keeping, sustaining the tension. And that, that cat, that cry of the cat there, again was laid in deliberately to 
promote the idea that was the cat impregnated. I wanted the, it, the alien to have certain kind of uh, fascination and delicacy, uh, like this massive toy coming towards her, um, which was mesmerizing. And I put this music up for her, which seemed to help her. So, um, in fact, when I got into the Nostromo, and the, into the shuttle also at the end, I lined the side of the set with 15-inch uh, speakers, and I played Tomita in the, in the, um, in the uh, shuttle, absolutely full bore. So rather than a silent set and me shouting action and Sigoni rushing around um, in silence, I said, do you want some assistance? She said, yeah. I said, well, listen to this. And I had The Planets by Tamita, and uh, she liked that because then it helped her. It just helped her to have the, that massive orchestration around it, and it was, we had it right up. Yeah. And of course, making Sigoni a very lonely figure, she can hear the death rather than see the death of the other two. Her death is heard, and it's uh, probably more frightening by hearing it rather than seeing it. That was a tough session in the looping stage, trying to get that kind of scream. managed to do in the film here is always put the audience in the place of the individual about to die. So I think we've somehow touched on something which makes the audience very vulnerable to what's occurring, which I think is why it's particularly frightening. So the invention of how do you blow up a refinery is, uh, you know, tricky and should be complex. But also it's enormously frustrating. It's almost meant that this meant to be kind of almost humorous. Because here you are trying to read an instruction book, the time when you're about to meet your maker. And there's one of the, the fuses that I've got in the office, which Nikki gave it to me at the end of the movie. I've got this column. Nothing can be done by mistake here. This is going to be very deliberate. So in a way, it's like a one-sided, one-man way of being able to set off an atomic bomb. Danger. The emergency destruct system is now activated. The ship will detonate in T-minus 10 minutes. The option to override automatic detonation expires in T-minus 5 minutes. Now she hits the corridor, so this is very tough working in this CO2. 
because you, whilst it's kind of harmless, when you work in it, it sucks the oxygen out of the air, so you get really out of breath. It makes you gasp. Yeah, always loved this shot. She was never able to come from below because I hadn't had no double-decker set. But what I did was build enough of... That's why I had those high curbs so she could crouch, put her hands on, and pull herself up. We couldn't even afford a hole on the floor. So hence the design of the ladder and the base of the ladder. And I got kind of bored with the lighting. After a while, whilst I think it looks great, we needed to start to escalate, and I think on this film particularly, um, there, I started to say, how do we assist ourselves by assisting Sigoni, who's doing a fantastic job, but if the ship is going wrong, therefore the electrical systems are beginning to kick into uh, all sorts of emergency reactions. So we got some strobe lights, which I had attached to the front of the dolly, and I could actually adjust the knobs on the strobes to get the amount of delay. And uh, so that's why the whole thing was alive with uh, flickering light and God does what else, which at the time looked pretty new. Now I think I've seen in, you know, many other films. Curiosity of the alien for this creature, which is the cat, which ironically it leaves alone. But again, it's another clue. Could it have done something later when you get into the... Um, Shuttle. Now she's got to come back and switch off the power. But she's past the point of no return. There's one of our big miniatures, the engine room. When you get this played full bore, um, it's pretty intense, actually. And interesting to see that, that I think it's the last 17 minutes of the film, there is no dialogue except for utterances of Sigoni to herself. Now you've got the emergency thing really kicking in. You get this going six-track Dolby, big sound. It's a great mix. Now she's got to go all the way back. And they always wanted to cut this down. And I said, no, you know, you've got to show. The, that flapping door there was actually a guy standing there trying to hide the light. And um, they wanted to cut it out. I said, now nah, leave it in. But there's actually a guy there. So, interesting here that you have Sigoni about to lash out a technology that is going to destroy her. It's nice to play on mother and calling her you bitch as well. And these running backwards down the corridor with the Panaflex is murder. It was just run, 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 and the thing is bouncing all over the place. But I didn't want to use Steadicam because it's too smooth. 
I think I should talk about uh, Terry Rollins, who is my was my editor actually on five movies. Uh, he was my music editor on Duelists, and so I invited Eric, Terry to then come and become an editor and edit Alien, which I think he did a really formidable job on. And Terry's knowledge of music was uh, was great. In fact, he probably taught me all I know now about film music, or made me very conscious of score and the value of film music. Now, how do we keep this going until we get her inside that shuttle where we think the film is over? Interesting here, because it's sustaining. Everything is here sustained by, of course, Sigoni and the sounds of the ship about to blow. So that's all Jimmy Shields. It's really good. In fact, this is where we're all heading towards the end of the movie. And I felt that the film could not end here. But there was a big battle about, this is it, the film's over, right? I felt the rhythm is wrong, because after all, rhythms are music. The music, the story, if you like, is not, is not right. You can't end the film here. It's not that simple. Because for her to shoot in, sit in the seat, take off, just didn't make sense. So there was a big play of what to do. I knew what to do and said the alien has to be in this craft, so it's like the fourth act. They felt it was overkill, and I said, really, you need overkill. In a film like this, you need overkill. And in fact, I think in recent years, films have come up with endings on endings on endings, right? And I, I, this is where I first got the idea that really we should have an ending on an ending, you know what I mean? And she's away. And that's the old shaking the camera all over the place. It's the only way we can do it. And what follows is just artwork, just painting on a series of stills and intermixed between, literally in a laboratory, which is mixed between one shot and another. That's all painting. using the strobes on her, which worked very well. I wanted to go for two, I think three bangs, because that was a big vehicle. In fact, it's kind of silly, because with an explosion like that, there'd be nothing left. But why it explodes three times, it's just better. Why is, three is always better. There you go, I knew there was three. And a firestorm. Bit dodgy, but kind of good, considering it's just artwork. That was, a, I think, actually, that was a little bit of slit scan. Great cue. Here's the cue. Now you know you're in trouble. I got you. Got you, you son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Now you know you're in trouble. I think the music now, as dialogue, is telling you it's not over. Hit it a little bit there. So now we're tense again. 
love that cut to the cat, the little squeal of the cat. And you think, you're convinced it has to be the cat, I think, right? Because don't forget, we've invested in earlier shots of the cat wandering off by itself and then the alien looking down at, in the box. In fact, now looking at this, I would have almost put the box with the cat in it before her going into the cockpit. So then you think, A, the alien's in the cockpit, B, what it'd do to the cat. All right, it's nice to see you too. Is that satisfaction or is it threat? I wanted these hypersleeps to be eventually, for the end of the film, her to, I wanted her to be Sleeping Beauty. Now, when you lose the music, funnily enough, it gets more tense. And the natural sound effects gets, I think, even more scary. So, you wonder what the hell's going on. They kept saying, there's no sex in this movie. I said, well, you don't need any, but there's a good opportunity here to have a little bit of, you know, hint at that sexuality and... Sigoni is certainly the person to project that. And like in these films, what's interesting, and now I think about it, but then nobody else does. Um, she's just lost. She's just lost six colleagues, and she's going into mode of. How do I get out of here, right? How do I put myself into a position where I'm going to reach Earth and maybe the network will pick me up? And nobody ever raised that question. I do, but I thought, well, if it's not broke, don't, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Otherwise, you're going to have a serious psychological blitz as she, you know, collapses mentally because she's lost six colleagues. Oddly enough, there's a sensuality to this whole scene. Uh, partly the silence. It's um, subtly sexual, right? Or is it just me? This is a tough shoot inside a tiny, teeny cupboard. And it's even tougher. How the hell do you get the helmet to go on in one? And, the, and Nikki just did it. We just put the helmet on and as it hit, the lights went on. Inside the helmet, you just make a sound of an airlock and you got the helmet on. Economy.
there it is, watch. Simple. Beautiful helmets. Now we used the same suits as the planet and all we did was recycle and spray them white. Trying to think of something other than a laser gun or a, you know, a weapon. I thought a harpoon. So they're saying a harpoon? What would she use a harpoon for? I said docking and uh, like a safety thing in case something, it's like a safety, piece of safety equipment. And I thought because a harpoon is more lethal somehow and more, you know, a gun is too easy. Now, this is Sigoni's idea of saying, I want to sing, you are my lucky star, right? To keep myself uh, concentrating and not thinking about the worst that could possibly happen. So we did it on the day and then there was a bit, this big rush to get it, the clearance on it. <laughs> I love the lighting in here because it's very uh, harsh in a way, but beautiful. And shooting this with the strobes going, you're getting a obviously stroboscopic effect on the alien, so he's kind of jumping. Because I think in the strobe you're losing some frames. It's an illusion, but I think it helped. I love that as you see him slither out from the wall. Whilst it's humanoid, it's spooky. They say you don't see enough of the alien. I think you see plenty of the alien. And besides, he is humanoid. Because if the alien had originally jumped on the cat, then the, the alien would have been uh, a version of the cat, and so on. All these things would have been done now CGI, but they're tough to do physically, you know? It's all physical. So Roy Scammell was the stuntman who fell on elastic and then got pulled back up. There's the water effect of the engines going on, which I thought was particularly successful, particularly there. That's like, they say, what is that? And I says, well, you know, it's a plasma engine, of course. Then you cut him loose and let him drop. And he just clipped me and nearly knocked me out when they dropped him. And this shot, oddly enough, was spherical. We had to do it for a technical reason, but I left it spherical so you have the distortion on the body of the lens. There, particularly. That's beautiful. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew... Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up.
This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. I love these repetitions. And this is Howard Hansen music. Come on, Ken. And one of the reasons it really works beautifully, apart from going with the voice, goes into a hold in a second. Beautiful. Here. I love that holding pattern. Interesting, after a film like that, you end on virtual silence. The, uh, art, the production designer on this uh, was Michael Seymour, who was an old colleague of mine from television commercials, and who, uh, the, who had invited two young art directors at that particular point to assist him. Uh, Roger Christian assisted him with the look of and the construction of the spaceship Nostromo, and Roger Christian's now a director and has been for a number of years. And Les Dilly was in charge of everything to do with the alien, and therefore he would uh, carry out to Giga's drawings, remarkable drawings, uh, and transfer the, translate those drawings into these giant sets, which in itself is a task. There's a big leap between a drawing and a set where it looks real and uh, looks, I should say, viscerally real, rather than just like a rendition of a drawing. It, it, it can easily fall apart between the, 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 the art and the final construction. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, uh, I think I've been pretty well used to a lot of filmmaking at this point uh, through advertising and then a film like The Duelists. Uh, so I knew the best. I knew I needed the best um, because I'm very demanding. And uh, at the same time, I think I'm easy to work with and... Uh, and the whole thing, you know, when you put a good bunch of people together, it becomes all very inspirational. And I think, uh, above all things, if it's not fun, you shouldn't be doing it, you know. So uh, I love the process of filmmaking, and um, uh, th thank God I'm able to continue making movies. <laughs>